Hey everyone, I was going to make this podcast episode on the $5 a month tier because I figured people on that tier deserve some sort of exclusive content for supporting me. But after recording this, I think it's better off as a public episode. This is for a couple reasons, one of which is I don't want to do the like bad faith thing where they like start drama and then put it behind a paywall. And two, because I think that it's like covers and goes over some very common misconceptions about Marx and Marxism that I don't merely see in someone like Ben Burgess, but, but also in, in quite a few people. And so while I'll usually be releasing $5 a month episodes alongside the $2 ones every you know week or so, this one is, I guess, unlocked, so to speak. So yeah, I hope you enjoy it. And I hope that you read Critique of the Gothic Program. Uh, it's, it's a 20-page pamphlet. It's not very long. And it clears up all of this misunderstanding. So yeah, anyways. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. This episode will get into what sort of inspired me to make the other episode about Cohen, and that was an article posted by Ben Burgess to Jacobin called Karl Marx Was Right, Workers Are Systematically Exploited Under Capitalism. Now, this article invokes Cohen a great deal, which I think makes sense because Ben Burgess sort of markets himself, and I'm using that word specifically, is someone who is able to embed himself within common sense and how people speak in sort of a common sense, non-technical, non-philosophical way in order to convert people. Because, you know, the leftists, they all have blue hair and they scream and they can't make real arguments. Now, I am not intrinsically opposed, I think, to this general idea of speaking in the language of common sense to make ideas more approachable. I think that that's fine and that that works sometimes. The problem is that one has to be very select in choice about how one does it. This is to say that if you're a Marxist, your messaging, if it's going to be simplified and you're, you're, not, you're going to basically treat people as if like people aren't going to look and try to find the complexities of the Marxist system, of Marxian economics, you have to essentially produce ideas that are sort of Marxist, that, that follow the sort of underlying logic of like a more complicated philosophical system, but that can make sense to people in terms of like a common sense way. Doing this sort of public philosophy, it's essentially a work of translation. That's what, that's fundamentally as like a public intellectual of this sort, what you have to do. You have to be thinking within your f philosophical intellectual school and, and standpoint, but you have to be continually translating it so that these complicated terms that you have to read seven books, you know, to know what they mean aren't present in it. Which is obviously difficult because conceptual terms are really important, specifically because of how oftentimes complicated they are and, and the histories they have to them. But I think fundamentally, and I haven't formulated in this into like a really proper critique, I think that the way Ben Burgess does things is not through that translation process. Ben Burgess thinks in the realm of common sense, first and foremost. And I think like with this article, what it demonstrates is that that thinking in that way just doesn't produce anything that is coherent with, let's say, the Marxist projects. This is the problem with Cohen more broadly. An attempt to make the Marxist philosophical project analytically rigorous and responsive to the types of discussions that happen in analytic philosophy that are far, I think, less concerned with these grandiose philosophical terms, sublation, geist, reification, I don't know, just the first three that came off the top of my head, but instead the the focus of analytic philosophy in like the 40s and 50s especially is thinking 
about the world through common sense terms. Even if analytic philosophy is very rigorous and complicated and, and tries to be very, very specific, that's sort of the intention of it. And Cohen attempted to translate into that language and he failed because I, I just don't think that a lot of Marx's ideas can be articulated in that way. I think a good demonstration of this sort of sentiment is a section of Minima Moralia, one of Adorno's really important works. This is the 50th aphorism to quote, for the value of a thought is measured by its distance from the continuity of the familiar. It is objectively devalued as this distance is reduced. The more it approximates to the pre-existing standard, the further its antithetical function is diminished. And only in this, in its manifest relation to its opposite, not in its isolated existence, are the claims of thought founded. This is essentially to say that I think good political philosophy and good philosophy in general takes people out of a sort of you know pre-existing standard, pre-existing perspective that they're placed within. And it's a lot harder to do that if you're thinking in the language of common sense. So, so instead of this translation process, I think for the most part, Ben Burgess just does think in common sense. And I think what this article demonstrate is that that is a failure that isn't particularly useful because you, you end up really fundamentally contradicting a lot of the important elements of the theorists you're taking from. Because fundamentally, these are theorists who a lot of the sort of force behind their thoughts come from the distance, from the continuity of the familiar, to, to quote Adorno again. This is, again, not, not necessarily to say that you can't attempt to translate Marx into the language of common sense, but that you have to understand exactly what you're doing, which is a process of translation. So this is Human Centipede, Marx, Cohen, Burgess, where slowly over time it gets more sort of reference to common sense public discussion. So anyways, that's how I want to set up the article. It's very critical. The subheading to the article that Ben Burgess writes uh, is, quote, even among Marx-friendly economists, the labor theory of value has fallen out of favor, um, which, first off, is a very strange idea. There's a particular discussion by certain Marxian economists about whether Marx has a, quote, labor theory of value, but the overall broader discussion, especially in a layman instance, of what a labor theory of value means is sort of meaningless, you know. In, in its sort of distinct instance, it's a discussion about what the socially and socially necessary labor time that determines value means. What are the different factors within an economy that, that affect this? But what you'll essentially see it translates to for Burgess is just the idea that like, is it the case that the real prices of things are determined by how long it takes on average to make them? which seems like a, a discussion that's far more fit for like a Ricardian or especially a Smithian for someone who believes in Adam Smith's uh, account of political economy. Not that you can in the 21st century. But to move on in the subheading, but labor theory values, technical validity is less important than the core message. Workers are exploited because the value they create is undemocratically taken by capitalists. So there's a lot going on here that is really worrying. Um, maybe you could say, like, I know this happens with Zizek sometimes. I don't know if it's the same with the subheading, where, like, an editor does it for you. And it's like, you know, the same with the, the Zizek article, where the, the heading of it is, or the title of it is, Freudian psychoanalysis is antithetical to transgender ideology. And you think, oh, God, what is that? What is he saying? And the basic, the basic thing that he was saying wasn't that bad. It's something that I sort of believe, which is to say that, like, when you ask the question of, like, 
did you choose to be trans or did you choose to be gay? It's not like an active, spontaneous choice of the mind, some weird like neo-Kantian like. Instead, it is a product of essentially an unconscious choice that is produced by the sort of psychosocial mechanisms that form the intending subject in the first place. So it's not a choice that the conscious individual can make. That's the point that Zizek makes. And it's like, okay, that's fine. So, so like, this is to say maybe maybe the, the idea that exploitation for Marx is workers' value is, quote, undemocratically taken by capitalists. Because that's just not the case at all. Um, Marx critiques this in multiple instances. Uh, the critique of the Gotha program, which is, again, just a 20-page pamphlet. It's not doesn't take that much time to read. Is a good example. Um, Poverty of Philosophy is another example of this. Within Poverty of Philosophy, Marx is critiquing this sort of what he calls equalitarian formulation of Ricardian political economy. And this is to simplify the desire to, quote, reform society by transforming all men into actual workers exchanging equal amounts of labor. This is essentially the idea that the economy should be based upon workers or craftsmen who own their means of production and produce commodities in order to be exchanged on the market with other producers. So there is no desire, as Marx wishes to do, of abolishing the value form, of abolishing the category of worker, which again, the idea in Marx, the working class has a revolution and it abolishes itself, but instead to turn everyone into a worker. Marx, even within 1847, relentlessly mocks this idea. Marx notes that, quote, relative value measured by labor time is inevitably the formula of the present enslavement of the worker, instead of being, as Monsieur Proudhon would have it, the, quote, revolutionary theory of the emancipation of the proletariat. So think of this going forward into this article while I read it out, that Marx is directly saying that the idea, any idea of an economy in which commodities are exchanged based upon labor time is the current state of the enslavement of the worker. It has nothing to do with their potential freedom in a non-capitalist society. The system of value is socially contingent upon capitalism. So this attempt to define, you know, even exploitation in terms of like the value that is rightfully owed to the worker in, in virtue of the fact that they produce value is totally the wrong way of thinking about it for Marx. Marx is opposing the, the whole game of objectively determining people's labor through the system of value. That all has to end. Essentially, and, and this, is, this is not a pedantic point. This is a point that Marx says that is very essential to organizing. I mean, Marx critiques the Gotha program, which is a program for the German Social Democratic Party to organize. But when they say that, you know, the worker has a right over the value that they produce, Marx says that that is fundamentally the wrong way of looking at it in terms of organizing. Now, again, like, this is the layman common conception of Marxism. I would say about 80% of Marxists probably think this. Yeah, probably 80, 80 or so percent of, like, people who are like, yes, I'm a Marxist. But an intellectual has no excuse for thinking this way. This is, this is a common sense view of Marxism that, again, isn't the product of taking a Marxian conception of the world that is not immediately known to common sense because of all the technical terms and how they're used and and then translating that conception this is a lot this is a product of merely thinking through common sense itself another problem is that marx essentially says that the system of value is predicated on exploitation so even if the boss doesn't exist there are still parts of the value produced by the worker that 
won't directly be owned by them. This is, you know, firstly in relation to capitalist production and the nature of value, you have to continually modernize production. This is what said in the Communist Manifesto even, that the, there is this sort of continual rat race of putting money into production in order to be more efficient. Because if one isn't efficient, then other capitalist firms will beat one out and you'll go out of business, you'll starve. So you think of this theoretical world in which there are, in which all of the value that is produced is democratically managed by workers. This, there's still exploitation in this world on the Marxist view. Again, Marx, Marx critiques this view that like, oh, the worker is entitled to all the value they produce in virtue of the fact that it wants to turn everyone into a worker. Now, Marx says, no, no one should be a worker. The, the working class, when they take over the communist revolution, they abolish class. They don't just establish themselves. So, so that is just, that is not Marx's conception of exploitation. Workers are exploited in virtue of the fact that they have to compare their labor to other people through the medium of value. They're, they're different heterogeneous types of labor that are not equivalent in any way, because, you know, they're different types of things, are made equivalent as a result of the value form. And that itself is a form of violence. It's contingent on domination. It's a miserable state of affairs. As, as Bordiga says, the hell of capitalism is the firm, not that the firm has a boss. I think that perfectly represents. So, so we're beginning with a very poor conception of Marx. Um, so let's, let's continue. Marx's collaborator, Frederick Engels, called their project scientific socialism. The idea wasn't that social science by itself could tell you that socialism was better than capitalism. The quote-unquote science, Marx's drive to uncover the quote, laws of motion of capitalist economies, was an engineering science. One meant to understand how capitalism worked in order to overcome it, and thus, in Marx and Engels' eyes, remove arbitrary economic obstacles to human flourishing. Um, so, so far, this isn't too bad. Um, you know, the idea isn't that social sciences by itself could tell you socialism was better than capitalism. Yeah, because it's scientific. They're empirical studies of phenomena. So one ought to theoretically study the phenomena of exploitation, technically, without making a moral analysis of it. Now, where Marxist science is radical is, of course, where it contextualizes, where it reveals elements of the world that are contingent, that people take to be these transhistorical, transcendent realities, like the production of value, and notes that they are not inevitable, that they did not exist for a very long time, and that there could be a future in which they're abolished. So it's using the sort of objective standard that is made legible as a result of bourgeois relations of production to destroy the system. Anyways, moving on to in the article. In his magnum opus, Capital, Marx uses the most advanced economic theory of his day to decipher the structure of capitalist exploitation. Like David Ricardo and other previous non-socialist economists, Marx thought that the value of a commodity was a product of the labor time it took to produce. The quote, labor theory of value. Let me, I'll finish the, before I, I'll finish the, the paragraph. Sharpening Ricardo's analysis with his own insights, Marx conceived of value as the congealed result of average socially necessary labor time. Okay, so he saved it in the last sentence, I guess, because, because Marx's idea of value and the process of, of producing value is, again, radically different than Ricardo and Smith. This is why people say that, that Marx doesn't have a labor theory of value, like why economists make this claim. That again, like, like especially Smith, Smith is the most sort of extreme example of this, where Smith literally just thinks that the labor theory of value is a product of the average amount of time it takes to produce things. Like, it's intentive. People are smart and therefore will react to the average labor time. They, it'll be used as 
the means of exchanging things. It's the only legible like condition of different heterogeneous products. This is, you know, his example of why, you know, diamonds are worth so much and water isn't, even though water is way more useful. It, it, it fulfills a really important need. It's just because like we compare things based on how much average time it takes to make them. And Marx problematizes that vision to a very large extent. And you can see that within the average socially necessary labor time, which is in addition, socially necessary labor time, not average labor time, socially necessary. This doesn't merely mean just, you know, the average amount of time it takes to make a thing. It means an amount of sort of, you know, this congealed labor that is perceived through capitalist relations of production. The critical point to note here about Marx's divergence from Ricardo and especially Smith is that the only way in which this value can be legible is within capitalist relations of production. So when we ask the question, why is this form of labor equivalent to this form of labor? It is through domination and exploitation. It's not merely this sort of intentive comparison that people make based upon how much time it takes on average for things to be made. It's radically different than that. And even arguably Ricardo's account is different. So far, I mean, that's not the biggest deal, especially in sort of a common sense articulation. You add in the average socially necessary labor time, so it's different. Um, but again, I think, again, the, the really strong rhetorical moment here is the idea that like, okay, so socially necessary labor time means that you're forced to compare your type of labor to other people's you know, type of labor through this objective medium of value in order to survive. There are social and economic relations that exist far beyond your control that may arbitrarily at some moment say, hey, you know this commodity you're producing to survive? It's worth half the value that it was before. That means, you know, all the commodities you needed to survive, you can only buy half as many now. So the very existence of these laws of exchange as the way of distributing use values is the problem. Not that these laws of exchange are not quote-unquote democratic enough. That is the sort of position that Proudhon is taking, that the Ricardian socialists are taking, that Marx is explicitly against. Again, the hell of capitalism is you're forced to compare the way that you labor to other people in order to survive. That's the most rhetorically strong, I think, and really fundamentally like Marxist talking point here. We shouldn't live in a society in which this is the case. So moving on. If you think of quote-unquote value in this way, the traditional socialist charge that workers are exploited under capitalism is easy to understand. Workers produce value, but capitalists control how much of it is returned to them in wages. So again, uh, just that's not what Marx means by exploitation. It's a, a phantasm to reference, you know, Plato and his critique of the sophists of the sort of general idea articulated in Marx. And the, the thing that's off is really fundamentally important. Workers are exploited in virtue of the fact that their value is objectively determined, period. To quote uh, the, the President of the United States, that's it. The, the, none of the extra stuff about capitalists controlling the wages isn't a necessary element of exploitation. And importantly, that type of messaging, again, Marx disagrees with. Marx does not want people merely making the demand that workers are entitled to more value. He thinks that that is a very misguided account of how to organize. Anyways, okay, moving on. Like every other area of empirical inquiry, though, economics has changed a lot since Capital was published in 1867. Today, most economists, including many who are committed Marxists, reject the labor theory of value, LTV. Okay, but again, what does 
the labor theory of value mean in this context? What does what does Ben Burgess mean by that? Because it seems like he's just referring to this idea that things are exchanged based upon how much time on average it takes to make them. And you know, neoclassical economics proves that wrong. This is like a discussion between a Ricardian and a neoclassical economist. Like it's not it it doesn't relate to Marx. And I I mean yes, like neoclassical economics is far better at determining like the real price than Marxists are. That's certainly the case. You could argue that that's not particularly relevant to the Marxist project, neither in even like Marx's period, but especially now. This isn't a competition to predict prices the best. Like that's not what Marx is concerned about. But you know, maybe I agree with Penn then that this doesn't matter. But but again, when he says we have to reject the liberty of value, what does he mean by that? I, I would like this to be made sort of more coherent. Moving on. But does the apparent obsolescence of the labor theory of value mean capitalism is innocent on the charge of exploitation? Not quite. Okay, so that's as the Marxist philosopher G.A. Cohen demonstrated, Marx's core insight about exploitation can be reformulated in an even simpler way if you drop his 19th century assumption about value and prices. The key point is that workers are the source of the products that have value, and capitalism systematically forces them to surrender some of that value to the boss. Now, like... That's not the key point of exploitation within Marx. Now, as I talked about before, Cohen has this article in the 90s about Nozick, actually. If you're familiar with Nozick, he's, he critiques Rawls. He's like an ANCAP philosopher, basically. He's a libertarian. That's the, like, comes up with the idea of the night watchman's state. If you're familiar with, if you ever heard a libertarian mention that phrase, it's from, it's from Nozick. And Nozick essentially critiques the idea, among other things, critiques the, the quote-unquote Marxist idea that it is morally wrong for the worker to not have access to all of their value they produce. And this is, as I hope I stated before, not the claim that Marx is making. One, that it's not a moral claim, but two, that Marx is not saying that the worker is entitled to the value they produce. He's directly not saying that, objectively speaking. But as it stands in terms of the framing of the debate, as in, is it the case that we can justify through bourgeois rules of fairness that it is unfair that the worker is exploited, I think that Nozick makes an interesting argument. And Cohen, in the article on Nozick, agrees with me. Because again, Cohen wants to use Marx as a way of engaging with liberal political philosophy, basically. Making a rational philosophical argument for communism or socialism because the workers' movement is not happening and there won't be a proletarian revolution. That's the basic sort of part of Cohen's later years. And this argument from Nozick leads Cohen to have a moral analysis of exploitation primarily through use values, through labor power, as I, as I went over before. So I would hope that this article mentions that, because that abandonment of that in later Cohen is really important. Burgess continues, that's a complicated proposition. The idea that workers are the source of the products that have value and capitalism systematically forces them to surrender some of their value to the boss. Let's walk through it. Start with Marx's original formulation. So again, that that's not Marx's point. They're straight up, that's just a, a fundamentally misinformed position. Let's move on. Marx spends the first. So this is Marx's analysis of labor and capital. Oh boy, I'm excited. Marx spends the first five chapters of Capital analyzing several economic concepts, starting with commodities, money, and value. He then considers them in relation to capital using his famous three-letter diagrams. Seems fine. For instance, even a subsistence farmer might sell some of the goods he and his family don't need to buy products they can't make. A chain of transactions that Marx renders as CMC, commodities, money, commodities. The capitalist does the opposite, MCM, money, commodities, money. 
While a miser simply keeps his money, this is an example used in capital, perhaps filling a swimming pool with gold coins like Scrooge McDuck, the capitalist turns his cash into commodities and turns those commodities in italics into more money, representing an underlying increase in value. Now, I mean, this is fine. This is, this is correct. I also want to note, though, that this increase in value in MCM is the process of exploitation. Now, this may seem obvious and in no way sort of problematic for Burgess's view of like workplace democracy, essentially. The problem being, if you have a system in which workers own the means of production but still produce commodities, there still has to be MCM prime, according to just essentially the capitalist laws of exchange and, and of value. You have to exploit yourself in order to compete with other worker-owned capitalist firms. Hence Marx's critique of the, you know, Ricardian socialists, as I mentioned before, who want to reform society by transforming all men into actual workers exchanging equal amounts of labor. This is basically to say that Proudhon and others who believe this basically think that, oh no, like, there won't be exploitation. There'll just be like equal amounts of labor that everyone exchanges between each other, but that this idea is absurd. Thus, the thing that fundamentally makes that money grow, that I'm sure we'll get to in a second, the difference between the value of labor power and the value produced by that labor still has to happen if workers own the means of production in a commodity-producing society. Anyways, to continue with the article. Whether by selling them, in the case of the merchant capitalist, or using them to manufacture new goods and selling those, in the case of industrial capitalists. Crucially, the capitalist drive to accumulate money isn't primarily about the individual capitalist being bad, greedy people, but rather the relentless pressure of the system itself. A capitalist who doesn't ruthlessly pursue profits will be outcompeted by those who do. As Marx says, the capitalist is a kind of rational miser. So that seems fine. I, I think that that's a... But to continue with Burgess, but Marx asks, how does the store of value held by the capitalist increase? To be sure, some people are better at business than others and can buy cheap and sell dear. This is again a reconstruction of the arguments within early stages, early chapters of capital. Uh, but how does the supply of value in society as a whole increase over time? Marx's answer is that a worker's capacity to work, her, quote, labor power, which I hate this. Oh my God, you don't do this shit in 2022. Cohen does this to be woke in like the 80s, where the theoretical person is a woman instead of a man. It's her. Just use them. We're not, we're not, just use them. Their, quote unquote, labor power. Marx's answer is that a worker's capacity to work, her, quote unquote, labor power, is a C. That is the capacity to turn M into more M. So commodity, capacity to turn money into more money. It's fine. At this point in the discussion, any good defender of capitalism will counter that the capitalist provides the physical means of production, factories, equipment, and so on. Isn't the capitalist the source of the value? But Marx points out both that the physical means of production are a source of value insofar as they are used by workers, and that these are themselves the results of the activity of previous workers. In Marx's phrase, dead labor, used by quote-unquote living labor to produce more value. Which, yeah, this seems fine. And yet, despite being the source of value, labor is dominated. In a striking passage at the end of chapter 6, Marx portrays a stylized exchange between the, quote, owner of money and the owner of this peculiar commodity, labor power, who meet in a marketplace to exchange their property. They meet as equals to make this exchange, but then, I won't read out the full quote, he puts, um, I'm, I'm certain I've, I've referenced this in my, like, capital walkthrough, but they go down into the, the realm of the factory, and the worker is treated very poorly, basically. I'm li I like how I'm like, oh, Burgess is like not precise, and then I just do that. But it, I don't want to have to fucking read it. As the book continues, turning at last to the key concept of class struggle, Marx writes at length about what the, quote, tanning looks like in our works. He describes, quote, half-starved widows giving up their children to toil in the matchmaking industry, 
working all day, every day, and facing very early deaths because of the industrial process. She writes about groups of desperate workers and their families petitioning local governments to reduce their work time to 18 hours a day. But Marx's key analytic point is that mainstream economists who ignore the class antagonism at the heart of capitalism are obscuring a central element. Under feudalism, the direct producers, peasants, are clearly forced into giving up some of their quote-unquote surplus labor, the time they spend working but not to make their own needs, to the ruling class. The coerced transfer is out in the open. Under capitalism, the immediate producers, workers, are legally free to make contracts with anyone or, if they're willing to simply go hungry, no one. This coercion is disguised. Yet the underlying reality, Marx insists, is a crude relation of domination and extraction. So yeah, the Marx section is basically fun. This sort of mirrors the idea that I was saying in relation to the fact that like it doesn't matter if the labor theory of value is true. But like Marx's labor of theory of value being true doesn't mean that the average amount of time it takes to make something is how you can track its real price in the world. That's not like, that is a misconception that I guess is present throughout this section that just isn't, isn't engaging in Marxian economics. Marx never claims this, really. I mean, it sort of looks like it in the first like three chapters of Capital. But a part of this, and I think I'm sympathetic to like Heinrich's view on this, a part of this is literally just that like, you start with these assumptions and then you ta- tear them apart. You critique them and where they come from. And so some of the sort of residual uh, uh, language there is rubbed off to make it appear as if Marx is making that like very absurd claim that like prices, like real prices, how things are actually exchanged is based upon how much time it takes on average to make something. What the quote unquote obsolescence of the labor theory value, which apparently modern economists are proving that it's wrong, means is, is it doesn't make sense. Um, it might be uncharitable to, to Burgess to say like that that's what you think the labor theory of value is, but Burgess has never demonstrated a particularly good understanding of Marxian economics. The best example of this, if you want to look, is um, he appeared on Radio Free Labor, which is Andrew Kleeman's podcast. Kleeman is like a TSSI person, which I'm not particularly fond of. I guess, I guess his book is interesting, but I don't think it's right. But basically, Burgess comes in and then says, like, I actually don't know anything about Marxian economics. He starts to talk about the labor theory of value, and then Kleeman is like, I don't even know what that means. I don't know what the labor theory of value means. What are, what are you talking about? And he doesn't have an answer. So, I, I, yeah, I don't... There's this fetishization from analytic Marxists about Marxian economics. But again, as I think I talked about before, Cohen, as well as the other, the other analytic Marxists that he sort of inspires, this that, that's what... Cohen's sort of way of viewing Marxism is called its analytic Marxism don't really engage much with Marxian Marxian economics and when they do they sort of just show that they're out of place there which is interesting to me because you would expect their love of empirical you know analysis to put them there but it doesn't um so anyways yeah moving on is the most important part of the 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 Peace, probably, G.A. Cohen's analysis of exploitation. In his 1989 book, History, Labor, and Freedom, socialist philosopher G.A. Cohen points out that while most economists, including many contemporary Marxists, reject the labor theory of value, rank-and-file socialists often talk as if the labor theory of value is obviously true. What explains the disconnect? The labor theory of value, as Marx inherited from Ricardo and sharpened it with his own analytic contributions, may or not be true, but it certainly isn't obvious. So again, what does he mean by this? Um, continuing. To begin with, 
The relationship between value and price that Marx postulated is complicated. Okay, this is like the, the classic suit, the mark of the suit is like, uh, oh, look, listen, it's complicated. Let's not talk about it. A whole series of facts about competition and supply and demand pressures can carry the actual market price of a commodity far away from its underlying value. Nevertheless, Marx thinks prices are still a kind of distorted reflection of labor time value. But again, what does labor time value mean? What does socially necessary labor mean? The view isn't as, continuing, the view isn't as easy to refute as many barstool libertarians seem to believe. Marx doesn't think, for example, that, that products have more value if they're made by particularly slow workers, obviously. Marx sees value as stemming from the social average in necessary labor time at its particular time and place. Still, even the non-strawman version doesn't persuade most contemporary economists. As economist and Jacobin contributing editor Mike Beggs notes, economists today think in terms of supply and demand schedules, rather than supply and demand as forces operating on commodities, which makes Marx's argument that something must account for prices when these forces are in balance much less compelling. Again, just like bringing up that neoclassical economics is able to explain prices better than the Marxian system, neither interesting nor relevant really to Marx's use and, and the overall goal of Marx's critique of political economy. To continue, but Cohen believed that rank-and-file socialists who think the labor theory of value is obviously true are moved by something other than Marx's technical claims about value. Instead, what moves them is something like a, quote, labor theory of things that have value, which I like that quote from Cohen, which is very obviously true. Regardless of what value is, no commodity that has value has ever been the product of anything except some combination of A, the non-human natural world, and B, human labor. Yeah, I mean, there's there's two ways of interpreting this, one of which is like, Again, the, I think it's within the Guandrisa or it's poverty philosophy, this idea that the wealth of societies comes because humans mix their labor with nature. And that if people stopped working, society would collapse. And again, as Mark says, like a child can comprehend that. Or it connects with the idea that obviously commodities are in some way made intelligible based upon labor. In which case, there's no reformulation of Marx. There's no like, oh, well, Marx fails in this way, and here he is in this other way. You don't have to take anything away from Marx. People know that the things that they produce have value because they're able to exchange it with other people, and they're forced to exchange it. They're forced to use the, the to exchange things based upon the objective laws of the market. If in a particular labor cycle or in a particular cycle of exchange, their commodity is worth less, then they'll make less, and they'll it'll be harder for them to survive. And in that sense, people understand that, like, the value that they produce comes from their labor. That's common, you know, it's... So I'll, 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 let's assume that that's what the argument is, because that seems like what Cohen was saying. So, okay, continue. Once that's in place, the entire analysis in the previous section still applies. Of course it does, because this is just Marxist, this is just the Marxist analysis. Nothing I've said presupposes the technical details of the libertarian value. Again, like, nothing said presupposes the technical details of the libertarian value. What does that mean? Like, what are the technical details of the labor theory of value? It's assumed here that we know the technical details, but why don't? Like, no one does immediately. What does it mean that Marx's labor theory of value is not true? Of, yeah. Okay, but our workers really exploited. This is a section continuing. Pro-capitalist economists like to talk about land, labor, and capital as independent forces that all contribute to production and say that, therefore, the disconnect between the parts of a firm's revenue that goes into workers' wages the part that isn't under their control is objectionable. After all, workers only supply one of three factors, but if capital means the share of society's resources and used in production, that's just the fruit of previous labor. It hardly rebuts the charge that workers don't control the products of their labor. 
What? It hardly rebuts the charge that workers don't control the products of their labor. What does it mean to control? Like the, the workers don't produce labor or they don't produce value? I'm, I'm confused about what that means. Capital means the share of society's resources above and beyond what's present on altered nature used in production. That's just the fruit of previous labor, right? It hardly rebuts the charge that workers don't control the products of their labor. So the, so the charge against pro-capitalists is that workers don't control the products of their labor. I'm confused about, oh, I see. So because all value is fundamentally produced by the laborer and they are therefore entitled to it. Again, this language, the language of the, the workers should control the products of their labor or that there's any society in which they do is um, in, in terms of like labor in terms of exchange value is nonsense. Now, like in terms of the Cohen claim about exploitation, it's common sense. This is in relation to the idea that, you know, the worker is exploited because they don't have control over a specific use value, the use value of their labor power. So not, not their value, not the value that they produce, but the, one of their use values. Insofar as like any capitalist will be like, yeah, the worker doesn't, doesn't work the way that they want to. You know, they, they, they're in some way forced to get a job and work in a particular way. Everyone knows that. You can't just work however you want to. You can't just labor however you want to. You have to work in a particular way. So if we connect it to sort of Cohen's moral analysis of exploitation as the violation of a right to a use value, you know, it doesn't make sense. So clearly, Burgess thinks of this in relation to the production of value, in which case the charge that workers don't control the price of labor is contradictory. It doesn't make sense in Marx. There's just no reality for Marx, as he says in Critique the Gothic Program, in which workers can control the proceeds of their labor undiminished. To, to imply that they have a right over it just doesn't make sense. Of course, to continue, capitalists sometimes do managerial labor themselves, but that doesn't mean that, quote, manager and capitalist aren't distinct roles. In a small enough business, the owner might even sweep the place up herself at closing time, but that doesn't make the role of capitalist the same as the role of a janitor. So, but, but this, this, yeah, I, I, I wonder what, I wonder what ben Burgess means here, because there are two things that we can be talking about here in terms of the capitalist doing labor. We can talk about that in terms of like the capitalist helping to produce and procure a use value, putting some effort in at some point in order to make the product at the end that they have legal ownership over better, which is a question of use values. Or we can talk about this in terms of like the capitalist doing labor, being a wage cuck, you know, because the process of being a wage cuck, so to speak, is where value comes from. It has nothing directly to do with the production of, of use values necessarily. This is to say that the capitalist system runs on that valorization process, runs on that, that extraction of surplus value. If you automate jobs, that's not like the same amount of labor. It's less labor. That's because there are less people who are working like wage jobs and having their surplus value exploited. That's the Marxist point, and it seems like Burgess misses that completely here. And I think he misses it insofar as he refers to, you know, the sweeping job that the owner of the shop does as labor. Clearly, this can't mean labor in the sense of producing value. There is no surplus value being extracted there. There's no sense in which they're a wage cock. And yet, if the argument relates to labor producing use value, then of course it does. Even a child would admit that if everyone stopped working, society would collapse. That for the most part, our use values are procured by labor power, by people laboring to procure them. So either that analysis is wrong or it means nothing. In order, again, to like 
have some rhetorical point about, and I think this is, I think I know, like what Burgess really means about this is he's conflating use value and exchange value. He's saying that like, because the worker generally procures our use values, they should be entitled to the value that that labor produces. Marx wants to problematize the fact that labor is objectified in the form of value. He doesn't want to say that the current arrangement of value is unfair and that we should make a more fair one. We should live in a society in which the value form, the rules of capitalist exchange, do not govern how use values are allocated. Most of our use values, the things that we need to survive, are procured by labor. That is common sense. Um, the broader point that like, the system of commodity exchange comes out of the valorization process in production is a lot harder to you know, wrap your head around. It's the idea that fundamentally the capitalist system is predicated on that extraction of surplus value. If it doesn't have that, even if it has use values that are being procured, there is a crisis at hand. There is a failure that needs to keep happening. That exploitation has to keep happening. When you invest in a stock and the stock goes up, that is a product of the extraction of surplus value and its reallocation to less labor-intensive industries. And I, like, he's just missing that, I think. Let's, let's continue. Let's see. Fine, a defender of capitalism could argue. But aren't capitalists still making an important contribution by hiring the managers that oversee the production process? While some managerial labor wouldn't be necessary if workers controlled the means of production and their incentives were different, some would be. But any managers who are performing useful tasks could be hired by a worker committee as easily as by a capitalist. As Cohen puts it elsewhere, what's socially necessary is what is delegated, not the capitalist who happens to be empowered by existing social structures to do the delegating. This is, this is also an interesting thing because like, as I talked about before, this process of translation, like you're trying to dumb this down, but as a result, missing the fundamental arguments and, and the nuances that exist in them. But it seems like he's flattening this distinction between use value and exchange value. Like he's saying that the laborer should be entitled to the products of their labor because they produce needs, they produce use values. Like if that's the argument, that Ben is making, it's commodity fetishism. It's the idea that you can measure usefulness based upon the amount of value imbued within an object, within a commodity, which is not what Marx is saying. You know, Ben can say like, oh, but neoclassical economics disproves Marx, in which case you are just not reconstructing the Marxian argument at all. You're flattening the distinction between use value and exchange value. And you're sort of vaguely signifying the labor produces useful things and the capitalist generally doesn't, even though sometimes they might produce useful things like a shopkeeper sweeping up a shop. Like this, just this move between use value and exchange value under this sort of nebulous things that are valuable is just like, it's just totally missing like the central argument of Marx's critique of political economy. And then we go down again, any managers who are performing useful tasks could be hired by performing useful tasks. No, this is what he means. He really does mean this, that, that the, the capitalist isn't performing a task that is like socially necessary. It's not a task that produces a commodity. Because, capital, because the worker produces a commodity, that is a thing that has a use value, but is also exchangeable for other things that have use values through the objective form of, of value, that they are, I guess, like good and entitled to the production of that value. I mean, that's really it. 
It's just like democratic production of commodities. When it comes to land, the equivocation is even more dubious. Does ownership of land contribute something to production? Only in the sense that the owner permits it to take place. If that counts, in an absolute monarchy where the king has to grant individual approval to every productive act in his kingdom, he too is usually contributing. So yeah, it seems like like Burgess is trying to take down this idea that workers don't produce our use values. But he's conflating the idea that workers produce use values with the idea that they produce value. And saying, because one of them is the case, they should be entitled to the other. They should be entitled to value. Which is dubious, one, because for Marx, use values don't come from labor, they come from nature. Our labor power, our ability to labor, is a part of the natural world. There are plenty of instances, I mean, in volume two of Capital, Marx talks about how, like, a thing can have a use and not have a... A thing can have a use and a price, but not value. Um, a thing can increase in its use without without necessarily being labored on, without increasing its value. So, like... um Example of this is wine. After a long time, wine ferments. And that's not like, it's literally a lack of labor, but the use value develops through there. That's perfectly conceivable for Marx. But again, it's, it's, it's nature is giving us a sort of like, Harvey uses the term free gift. I can't remember if that's actually in volume, uh, capital volume two. Does ownership of land contribute something to production? Does Burgess mean this in the sense of, does ownership of land facilitate the production of value? Or does he mean this in the sense of, does ownership of land contribute something to the production of use values? Because those are distinct questions. You might think they're the same, but they're very distinct. They're not very distinct, but they are distinct. Um, I think that the answer to this question is that Burgess is using the idea of value in its layman sense. He's using it how common sense people will use it. Value is things that are good. Laborers produce things that are good because they produce, you know, and then we have uses out of them. But that, but that misses a really important distinction in Marx, and one that like leads one into this position in which the value form is like it just always exists. The land itself makes a valuable contribution. Okay, that's okay. So, so he does have like it's a use value, right? It's nature, because land and the presence of land has nothing directly to do with the production of value. It it presupposes a labor relationship insofar as it could procure a use value. But again, it only relates to it insofar as it allows for the production of a use value. If we think of it in terms of value, land does not produce value. The thing that produces value is the wage-cock relationship. It's the extraction of surplus value, the difference between the value of labor power and the value that labor power produces. So, it's a, so this is about nature, it's about use values. How does that refute the Marxist charge that it's exploitative for workers not to control the output of their labor? that it's exploitative for workers to not control the output of their labor. Not control the output of their labor. But, but what is the... I'm trying to think of what Burgess means by this, what he's trying to refute. So the claim that he's trying to rebuke is the idea that the fact that land itself is a valuable contribution, contribution to what seemingly would have to be the use value of a thing, that therefore workers should not control the output of their labor Okay, because they owe some of that use value to the land that it came from, and someone owned that land, and therefore they owe, they deserve a cut. I guess that's the claim. Like, in attempting to dumb this down into sort of a common sense view, Burgess has translated it into, like, a different language. I feel like I'm reading French or something. When, when he says that the land makes a valuable contribution, and it relates to some 
claim in relation to the worker being entitled to the, quote, output of their labor, I'm supposed to immediately assume that Burgess makes the claim about the land being valuable in terms of a use value, and then the worker being entitled to the value that they produced. Because when we talk about the output of their labor, it's about, you know, ownerships of commodities within a capitalist system. So it, it surely has to relate to a claim about value, right? Like it, it has to. That's, that's how distribution works in the capitalist system. And so how could the equation of workers producing a certain amount of value through their labor be affected by the fact that they depend upon, let's say, land as a use value? And, and, you know, Burgess might respond to that by being like, oh, but I'm trying to simplify it. I'm trying to say in very vague terms that landowners are not entitled to a certain cut of the production of value. And if that's the case, and we're talking about the distribution of value, I'd revert to the Critique of the Gotha program, where Marx says, do not the bourgeois assert that the present day distribution is quote unquote fair? And is it not, in fact, the only quote-unquote fair distribution on the basis of the present-day mode of production? Are economic relations regulated by legal conceptions, or do not, on the contrary, legal relations arise out of economic ones? And I saw, when Burgess went on Kleeman's podcast, I remember this distinctly, Burgess had the response that like, oh, but surely there would be a conception of, a different conception of fairness within a communist society. And when I talk about democratic distribution of value, I mean in terms of that fairness. And the obvious, obvious response to that is that when we're talking about the distribution of value, we're talking about the current present day mode of production. And so the current distribution in which a landowner gets a portion of the value produced by labor is fair. Marx is making the point that if we distribute value, it's going to produce situations like this. It's going to produce exploitation necessarily. Asking for, and this is literally, the Critique of the Gotha program is Marx, Marx critiquing the organizing slogan of this German Social Democratic Party. So this is not pedantic. Burgess's whole claim here that like the contribution of the use value of land should not affect the workers' sort of claim over the value they produce is like, well, I mean, yes, obviously not. What affects the workers' claim over the value they produce is the current relations of production, the current economic system of exchange, the production of value, which necessitates exploitation. As radical scholar David Schweikart, which I might be pronouncing wrong, I'm sorry, argues in his book After Capitalism, unless the idea is that some of the crops produced by the combination of land and agricultural labor are going to be burned as a, quote, sacrifice to the god of land, the land's contribution seems rather irrelevant to questions of distribution. So this is, okay, right, so this is fundamentally about questions of distribution. So it's about value. It's about value. And if it's about value, use value has, has, has nothing directly to do with the question of how value is distributed. Burgess is caught up in, he's trying to make a sophisticated argument, but like, it, it's hard to even know what he's saying because he's trying to dumb it down, I guess. Like, like, introduce the distinction between use value and value. Does he even mention? No, he doesn't use, he doesn't use the phrase use value in this entire article. Is, does he use exchange value? No, he doesn't. So it's just, it's just this general idea of value. Yeah, I mean, it's like use value and exchange value aren't difficult concepts to introduce. And they clarify these problems. They clarify the problems that like the system of entitlement, of, of distribution, of, of, of what goes to who is fundamentally determined by the laws of exchange and capitalist 
capitalist relations of production, which fundamentally produce exploitation out of just in virtue of the fact that the value form exists. This weird mixing between the idea that like workers produce value in this unqualified sense and that workers produce value in the really specific Marxian sense that determines distribution really produces like a, a just a confused view of the world. Okay, moving on. In the same vein, G.A. Cohen argues that it doesn't matter for the charge of exploitation whether auto workers are directly producing value or simply producing cars which have value. Not rooting Marxist analysis of exploitation through 19th century assumptions about equilibrium prices simplifies the issue and sharpens Marx's original analogy between feudalism and capitalism. As with feudal peasants, workers are deprived of a control of the product, and hence whatever price it fetches if the person who controls it sells it. No, that is not the claim that Cohen makes. And it's not, Cohen may have made this point at some point, maybe. But if he makes it, he's wrong there, and he's far more interesting within that article I was talking about in relation to Nozick. I mean, I, I realize I haven't read everything from Cohen. I don't know why I would, I'm going to be honest. But the, the compelling analogy that Cohen makes between feudal peasants' exploitation and workers' exploitation is the fact that they, they are not allowed to labor in the way they please. They are forced to use their use value of labor power. Because again, our we exist in nature. So how we interact with the world is a, a use value. It has, you know, usefulness to us. Obviously, of course it does. Both of those groups are not allowed to, are not able to use that use value in the way that they please. There's a lack of freedom there. And Marx certainly talks about freedom in terms of like a Hegelian, you know, you're less free and then people become more free. But that, that has nothing to do with the labor theory of value. That has nothing to do with value. That re relates to use values. So again, if we're talking about, you know, to quote Cohen a, a little paragraph before, exploitation for workers not to control the output of their labor, not control the output of their labor, we're talking about value. We're not talking about the use value of labor power, we're talking about value and its distribution. In which case, if you're arguing that there should be a better distribution of value, you're not a Marxist. You like you are a Marxist in the sense that most Marxists believe that, sure. You are that is an incoherently different than Marx. I think what is like one of my mutuals, I think it was Robin, uh, said at some point, you know, someone was making this position about Marx and she quote tweeted it. And it's like, it's funny that like in Marx's life, he was like, if you believe this, you deserve to die. And then like 80% of Marxists now think it. That's, that's the, the, the life that Marx, I mean, not the life that he lives because he's dead, but, but that's like what happens with Marx. This, this fundamental misunderstanding, I keep, keep going over it, is, is so bad. Um, and really just ruins any capacity to make like a Marxist analysis. It confuses um, the production of uses in general, which doesn't relate directly to, to labor, but relates to nature, with the process of distribution within capitalism, which relates to value and the distribution of value based upon capitalist laws of exchange. That, you know, if there is value, they'll be based on those laws and there will be exploitation. So I think th this is like the final... Final, final stretch, the Cohen's analysis of working class on freedom, which is a reference to an article Cohen wrote, one that I don't think is very interesting, but to be clear, neither Marx nor Cohen thought that the workers should receive the entire price of the labor. Okay, here we go. Wow. It's wow. Okay. Let's see what he says. Marx argued, this is probably a reference to critique of the Gotha program. Yeah. Okay. Marx argued that this would be both impractical and wrong for a variety of reasons. For one, what about upkeep of old factory equipment? 
or about building new factories? What about common needs like schools and hospitals, the consumption? These are those that are able to work. What makes the surrender of some of the value produced by workers or the value of the commodities they produce exploitation is that it's surrendered not in some... Oh, my God, dude. How did you... Let me... It's surrendered not in some democratic process in which the beneficiaries have to make a convincing case, but that it's taken as a result of the power one class has over another. You linked to the critique of the Gotha program, and then you said that the problem is that the distribution of value is not democratic. No, yeah, he linked it. Critique of the Gotha program, Karl Marx, 1875. He literally, did you just not fucking read this? It's 20, 20 pages long. 20 pages, it's not very long. So for context, this part of the critique of the Gotha program that Ben is clearly referencing relates to a critique of the slogan that the proceeds of labor belong undiminished with equal right to all members of society. Ben Burgess is essentially saying that Karl Marx within the critique of the Gotha program is saying that the worker is entitled to the diminished proceeds of their labor and not the undiminished ones. It couldn't be the undiminished proceeds of labor because, you know, you know, you have to put value back into the reproduction of the factory that is slowly breaking down as a result of production, and then also to general sort of social needs for people who aren't laboring, sort of collective projects. Let's see what Marx says. To quote Marx, within the critique of the Gotha program, where Marx is not only critiquing the idea that workers should have undiminished proceeds of their labor, just as the phrase of the undiminished proceeds of labor have disappeared, so now does the phrase of the proceeds of labor disappear altogether. Within the cooperative society based on common ownership of the means of production, the producers do not exchange their products. Just as little does the labor employed on the products appear here as the value of these products. To break it down for you, in the cooperative society, based on common ownership of the means of production, there is no value to products. Products are not exchanged based on the value for. Since now, to continue, since now, in contrast to capitalist society, individual labor no longer exists in an indirect fashion, so mediated through the value form, but directly as a component part of total labor. The phrase, proceeds of labor, objectionable also today on account of its ambiguity, thus loses all meaning. It's like Ben stopped reading right at the part where I started quoting it. Like, let, let me, let me, let me reread this fucking paragraph. To be clear, neither Marx nor Cohen thought that workers should receive the entire products of their labor. So the undiminished products of their labor. Marx argued that this would be both impractical and wrong for a variety of reasons. For one, what about upkeep of old factory equipment? Or about building a new factory? What about common needs like schools or hospitals? The consumption needs of those unable to work. So this is the section within the Critique of the Gotha program where Marx is critiquing the idea of the undiminished proceeds of labor. But then Burgess continues, what makes the surrender of some of the value produced by workers or the value of commodities they produce exploitation is that it's surrendered not in some democratic process in which the beneficiaries have to make a convincing case, but that it's taken as a result of the power one class has over another. But again, Marx doesn't say that. Marx says that in the cooperative society, based on common ownership of the means of production, there is no exchange. There is no negotiation process about who gets value. It says that in the next fucking paragraph. I mean, I mean, maybe I shouldn't be reacting like this. Maybe I should just expect Ben to just not fucking read, the th even the things that he's citing. But maybe that intellectual standard is reasonable to have for people who are supposed to be serious and who are supposed to be publishing in a serious intellectual institution. Maybe that's the case. I don't know. I guess not. So it's interesting because, like, the communist society is built on the maxim from each according to his ability to each according to his need. This means that, like, 
use values are distributed based upon need. The person producing these use values isn't like a, a, a petty tyrant who is able to give out their value to, to whoever they please. There is a system of distribution based upon need that doesn't relate to the form of value. Okay, continuing. The real question is whether the part of the value controlled by the capitalist is voluntarily surrendered by the worker. No, it's not. In fact, Cohen argues that the labor theory of value being true would do nothing to strengthen the charge of exploitation. To see why not, assume a simple marginalist account of value, whereby value is produced by the desire of consumers. Does that somehow give consumers a right to the things they desire? Of course not. Exactly, so we should abolish the value form. The real issue is who produces the goods and services themselves, and whether the arrangement by which these products comes under the control of separate capitalists once the, the work is accepted of their own free will. No. I mean, it's just not, like, yeah, it's just, it's just, I mean, I'll have to repeat myself again and again and again, as I already have, but I think it should be evident, the, the problem there. Hi, later, later live here. Uh, basically, the rest of this article goes over Cohen's account of proletarian unfreedom, the argument he makes, and I basically have no disagreement with it. It's a pretty honest retelling of Cohen's account, and I don't think Cohen's paper is, is, is wrong. What is important to note that I note in reading it off is that it's really weird that Burgess took this paper that critiques Robert Nozick's account of freedom, and not the other paper that critiques Robert Nozick's critique of the idea that the worker is not entitled to the value they produce, because that seems like it's very related to the discussion. I think the general answer to that, if Burgess is familiar with this paper, the paper being why Nozick exercises some Marxists more than he does any egalitarian liberals, is that Cohen essentially abandons the idea that exploitation in the moral sense can be defined through exploitation of surplus value. Instead, Cohen makes the very interesting argument that I go over but nevertheless disagree upon in the uh, $2 a month premium episode that was released, I guess, yesterday on patreon.com slash that instead, the worker has the right to a use value, the use value of their labor power. This use value is violated in every single class-based society, insofar as people do not have the freedom to labor how they please. Co Cohen does not fall into the trap of essentially claiming that the worker is entitled to the value they produce, that the worker has a right over the value they produce. Cohen understands pretty clearly that that's not a Marxist idea. To quote Cohen in that paper, a connoisseur of capital might object that even if Marx did affirm some principle of self-ownership, such as self-ownership over use values, he could hardly have thought that such a principle was violated in the wage relation, since he so strongly insisted that the worker receives the full value of the labor power which he sells to the capitalist, that being the value of what is required to produce his labor power, to wit, the subsistence goods which the worker buys with his wage. Now the premise of this objection, that the worker, according to Marx, receives the market value of his labor power, is correct. To continue in the article, although the capitalist pays the full market value of the worker's labor power, and therefore cannot be said to steal any of its market value, he might be said to steal part of its use value, since a part of its use value is its power of producing more than is necessary to keep itself in being. I mean, this is Cohen being like, okay, yeah, clearly I can't argue that Marx is claiming that the worker's uh, surplus value, their market value, their exchange value is being stolen in any reasonable way, because that's just like an obvious point. But nevertheless, it's interesting that instead of using that article about Nozick that really relates to the discussion that Burgess is talking about, he uses the proletarian and freedom one, 
again, don't have anything particularly nitpicky to say about that section. It's fine. So I'll just cut it out because it's boring. You can go read the article yourself if you want. That was really hard for me to get through. Um, and I, I hope that you enjoyed that. I don't... Do you all like this? Was this entertaining? Because, um, yeah, I mean, that was just... The thing I said before, I hadn't fully read the article. Um, I had skimmed through it and sort of seen, oh, that's he's doing the dumb argument. He's not doing the argument that makes Cohen interesting in his like refutation of Nozick. Yes, we can't view the worker as entitled to the value they produce. I mean, Burgess just doesn't set himself up to have the capacity to make that analysis because he doesn't even distinguish between use value and exchange value, and it mixes them up regularly in the article. And and I think fundamentally he does this because he's speaking and thinking through the means of common sense. Common sense is that labor produces value in a very vague sense, you know? There isn't a, um, a realm of use values and a realm of, of, of exchange values that are distinct, one being determined by socially necessary labor time, the other being just determined by whatever use a person has of a thing. There's just like things that are valuable, which like doesn't take that hard, doesn't take that long to explain use value and exchange value. And yeah, I'm like, this is really tough. And on that note, I hope you enjoyed this. If you want more of this, these types of things, let me know. I can do them. Um, yeah, I'll talk to you all later.